Welcome to episode 69 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today we are going to be talking about um, tropes in romance, but before we get to that, I do want to note that my daughter is outside my door having a temper tantrum right now. She is safe. She's with her father. She's being tended to. But if you hear the screams of a three-year-old in the background, (laughs) that's what's going on. And I can't really vouch for the sound quality because I am podcasting from the road again. (laughs) (laughs) As I am uh, recording from New York, uh, not New York, it's, I am recording from San Diego Comic Con. Oh my God. Where am I? What day of the week is it? I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Who knows? Nobody knows. It Um, might be kind of a loopy podcast because, um, we had we didn't have a typical recording schedule because no. I was out with a minor bout of food poisoning. Ugh, the worst. Um, yeah, and, and I've been extroverting the past two days, so it's um, so if I sound incoherent, that's probably why. <laughs> but romance, tropes and romance. Um, yeah, I'm excited because I love. We've talked before, I don't really read a lot of romance books, like in the category of romance, Um, but I do enjoy romance in as an undercurrent in stories and I really love romantic comedies as like a movie genre Um, I think they're just delightful and and wonderful and so um, I'm kind of excited to talk about the different types of romantic tropes I'm sure there's no way we will cover them all, there's a lot um, of tropes, but I figured we could just pick out um, a couple that are pretty well known and um, kind of break them down a little bit for you guys. So um, I think one of the ones that is probably really popular these days is the meet cute trope in romance. In what sense? Like popular? Well, popular in that it's, it's, um, ubiquitous. It's kind of everywhere, it seems like to me. It's a big staple in romantic comedies from like 2005-ish on. Um, there's a lot of them kind of just like in TV shows a lot of times. The romantic leads will kind of meet in a meet-cute kind of way. And I guess what we mean by meet-cute is usually our two love interests don't know one another and um, they somehow stumble into one another's spheres in kind of like an adorkable sort of way that's cute, sometimes awkward, sometimes they literally bump into one another, you know, sometimes there is some kind of other, you know, cute, slightly funny, strange interaction that they have that kind of introduces the two of them. Would you say a meet cute is something that you would see in other genres aside from romance? Or is that something that you think is romance specific? Um, I think you can see it 
in other genres. I don't know if we have other relationships. I don't know if we have non-romantic relationships start with a meet-cute, though. Like, I think you could have a meet-cute in a contemporary fiction novel, or you could have a meet-cute in a fantasy novel, you know, that wasn't specifically a romance category romance novel. But I don't know if you can have a meet-cute with, like, friends or... I think you can. You think you can? I think I think you can. I think, um... I'm sure there. I mean, granted, like I told you guys, I've been in, I've been extroverting for the past two days straight. So, <laughs> if my answers come out completely loopy, I do apologize. Um, so I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but I feel like there must be examples of meet cutes between friends, um, eat, or just like. I mean, the the thing about romantic tropes is interesting because you know the past two episodes we focused on like the chosen one narrative and then the kind of the fatal flaw narratives and romance narratives I guess is probably a better way to do it than necessarily tropes because if we did tropes we'd be here forever Uh it'd be like the podcast version of tv tropes which if tv tropes did but did a podcast you will never hear from me again ever again yeah um but like romance narratives I think can sort of broadly fall into different types of categories. So you have like friends to lovers kind of a storyline or a beauty and the beast storyline or like taming the shrew kind of storyline, which Mm -hmm. is sort of, I guess could could theoretically be considered um, beauty and the beast ish. I guess if you're like taming the wild beast or something, I don't know that my mind went to a very strange place. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was just at lunch with a bunch of writer friends and we were discussing the new beauty and the beast movie. Um, I have not seen it. Don't bother. Yeah. I don't plan to really. We'll get to that later. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about romance narratives um, so the, for example, we have the friends to lovers versus something like beauty and the beast. And I think one comes from, one is more conflict romance, like overcoming something like overcoming prejudice or overcoming, um, I think to me, there are like two er types of romance narratives, which is one is overcoming an obstacle of some kind, which is whether or not it's your prejudice or the fact that he's a literal monster or, you know, that she is apparently a, a harpy. Um, (laughs) or there's the, I don't know if one is conflict based, then what would you consider something like friends to lovers? Like, what would you call that? I don't know. Like, Sometimes they can fit into the slow burn category, but I don't think all friends to lovers romances are a slow burn. So I don't think that is quite the right way to categorize it. I think it's about the the friends to lovers story is about two people um, coming to know each other on a different level than they previously had. You know, that's that's something of their story, you know, evolving like. when Harry met Sally, they're, they're mm-hmm. start out, they hate each other and then they're friends and then they become lovers. And it, it's, you know, I don't even know if that's a good example. Cause the way that that happens is kind of an accident. <laughs> 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 it's not necessary. 
fairly intentional on their part. Um, yeah, and I wouldn't say that all romance narratives fall very cleanly into one or the other, but I do yeah. think one is sort of like overcoming conflict-based narratives, and then there's, I guess, one's maybe evolution-based narratives? Yeah, yeah. Maybe a different way to put it, because like I feel like, and I keep using Friends to Lovers because that to me is the least conflict overcoming obstacle type Mm -hmm. storyline which is just like over time they they come to see each other in a different light and Mm -hmm. it's a more romantic light um and maybe i wouldn't even say that these narratives lie in a spectrum but that's sort of the way i view romance narratives there's like the evolution romance where it doesn't even have to be friends. It could just be, like, work partners or two people who happen to be working together on a heist. Right. And over the course of the narrative, over the course of working together, they they happen to fall in love. Or, um, you know, so it doesn't have to be friends platonic necessarily in that strict sort of category. Um, Do you have a preference as to what kind of narrative you like? I like both. Um, I do like some conflict in my romantic relationships. Um, I think that it has to be some kind of genuine conflict and not something really artificial. I think a lot of times, um, with romances, you know, they just, they just get on each other's nerves, you know, and that's kind of the problem. And, and after a while that starts to really lose, momentum and lose impact if you know you're still dragging on the story and the only problem with these two people is that they don't actually like each other i'm like okay well then why yeah (laughs) why am i reading this romance then if that's really you know so i like um i do like when there's a good conflict for why two people can't be together and why they need to overcome that um but i do also really like friends to lovers i like the growth and character development that comes from two people changing and evolving and growing closer together over the course of a story. Um, so I really like both of those things quite a bit. I think if I have a preference, I probably like the evolution romance more than I like the conflict romance. Um, but I think sort of like what you said about like conflict based romances, like they just, you know, if it's just like a silly obstacle that comes from a misunderstanding and it's not like an organic conflict, you don't like the, the conflict romance as much. And for me, it's really hard to do an evolution romance. Well, because I think it falls into the opposite trap, not an opposite trap, but I think it falls into the, it's really boring trap. And I like, I like, conflict not necessarily romantic conflict between partners but i like some thing that you know that is in the way or even if that something in the way is the person just being unable to admit to themselves what their feeling is for the mm-hmm. other person you know just something as opposed to this like natural kind of and and you know and that's sweet too like having just like one day the both both parties wake up and, but I usually expect those sorts of romances to happen as like a, even like a C plot in a book, you know, right. where, it, where like the first two primary storylines or something else. Yes. So the romance is a sweet little like icing on top type of thing, but not like, um, it's not the, the main, driving force, of the not book. the driving force of the narrative. Yeah. So I do like the evolution best because 
I think when the evolution romance is done well and executed well, it I it's that thing where I love when I watch a show or I read a book where I just like want to take these two characters and be like, now kiss, <laughs> you know, and it's just there. I just love that kind of shipping yeah. thing to angle to it. Yeah, um, I like that. And I am a sucker, and I really am a sucker for the sort of relationship where it's, like, stoic and reserved, and it I won't tell you that I love you, but my actions will show that I love you kind of a thing, or that mm-hmm. I support you or whatever. So I think I do prefer the evolution-based romance, but yeah. there are some conflict-based romances I like, too. Like, I am a sucker for a Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. narrative. You know, you kind of, you just slap that on somewhere. I'm like, okay, where? (laughs) (laughs) I'm in. I'm in. Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of conflict romances, one that I think is probably one of the archetypes that I see that falls under that umbrella is kind of this forbidden love thing. Yes. And this is... um, in some ways, Romeo and Juliet, although they're also kind of star-crossed lovers, um, but, you know, they're forbidden in that they're from two different families who are at war and their parents will never approve of their relationship and they cannot be together for those reasons. Um, you know, Buffy and Angel and Buffy, she's a vampire slayer and he's a vampire. And even though he has a soul and is good, he's, you know, immortal and she's going to age and die and their relationship just cannot move forward. And um, Buffy eventually came to terms with the fact that like as a TV show, they couldn't sustain that romance anymore because it was so forbidden. Like it could not go anywhere. There was no more growing for those characters to do because ultimately they could not overcome the fact that their obstacle was never going to, was never going to change. They were never going to be able to defeat that to truly come together. So the show wrote Angel off the show so that they could end that romance, which I think is interesting because I think a lot of times we see forbidden romance and it's either A, not really forbidden, it's just a lot of scaffolding put in the way to make it seem like these two people can't be together, but really they're going to be together. Um, Or B, it ends tragically because they really can't be together. Mm. I'm not a huge fan of the forbidden romance trope, personally. I, I, I'm, it's not my favorite. I think, um, I think that it can be moving in at times, but I wouldn't count it among my most favorite types of romances. I really can't really. I can't really think of a forbidden romance that I like all that much. I think, I I don't think, I I honestly don't think I can think of one that I like. (laughs) There are certain things, I mean, I think it does go to the fact that I do prefer evolution-based romances. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also goes, I think, to the fact that when it comes to the love triangle, um, and specifically the love triangle where there's a female protagonist and there's generally two boys that she has to choose from, um, which I don't like it being called a love triangle because there's like no connecting leg between right. the boys. Yeah. It's like an A-frame triangle. Yeah, <laughs> it's not <laughs> the love A-frame. <laughs> the love A-frame. I'm not. I mean, I don't really like that trope much either. But often the choice comes down to which kind of romance is it—a conflict-based romance, or is it an evolution-based romance? Because often this is less common now, but it was pretty common. I would say like five five to ten years ago, 
Um, you had, you know, like the boy next door, and then you had like the mysterious new kid, you know, who was clearly bad for you or something. I don't, I don't know. And that was the conflict part of the romance, and right. I, that just is never interesting to me. I think it even goes all the way back to the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> Which again was something we were, my friends and I were discussing at lunch today. But um, the Phantom of the Opera, if you guys know me, are probably not surprised how much I love this musical. Um, it's gothic, up the wazoo, and it's like over the top and melodramatic, and it's great. Um, but I just remember being one of the few people who likes that Christine doesn't end up with the Phantom. She chooses her best childhood best friend, and I was like. I think that's like the right quote, right ending, you know, and be and, and like there were so many people, and I found it interesting because, in my opinion, one the Phantom is a murderer and a stalker and manipulative, like he legit kills people, you know. So I was kind of like, why would you choose this guy <laughs> over your childhood best friend who is also a viscount, like and really rich, like <laughs> putting it out, putting it out there. Um, but, like, there are obviously other characterization things, but I, I always found it interesting that people often do romanticize the conflict in a conflict yes. romance more than an evolution romance. I don't know. Do you think there's a reason why? I think, again, that people find the tension engaging and sexy and... I mean, for me, I know that what draws me to those kind of relationships is that tension. And you can usually, with conflict-based romances, there usually is a lot of chemistry between the characters. And you can kind of feel that. And because there is that tension in place and that conflict in place, it gives you something to um, like actively root for in a way because there's the possibility that it won't happen and so I think people get more emotionally invested in it happening whereas with the slow burn kind of friends to lovers emotional growth people can get invested in that and enjoy that but it's I feel like it's a more passive um uh, audience participation sort of a thing I feel like as a reader it's a more passive place for you to be because there's no conflict and so you know no inherent conflict in the relationship I'm sure there's conflict in the story um but so you're able to kind of sit back and be more passive and just observe this thing unfolding whereas I think with conflict romances there's that tension there that um makes people become invested yeah I guess for me it's also, this goes back to the Zutara versus Katang thing in Avatar The Last Airbender. Zutara! <laughs> yeah, I'm not a Zutara fan. I don't, I, I mean, them. I get it. Like, on an intellectual like level, I get it. Like, I yeah. get it the way people ship Christine and the Phantom in Phantom of the Opera. Like, I get it. I don't feel it. I don't know. I mean, the problem with me is that, like, there's so many conflict-based romances that I love that intellectually I know are, like, probably not the greatest. Like, you know, they're not necessarily, like, the healthiest relationships for our characters. Like, if if they were real people that were my friends, I I would encourage them to choose healthy partnerships with people who respect them. 
It's like, I feel like a lot of times in conflict-based relationships, a lot of the conflict takes up a lot of the space where the, like, emotional maturity and growth and respect are in the other types of relationships. And so instead of that, we get a lot of tension. Um, But I love it. It's like, I know that Ron and Hermione is a terrible relationship. I know that. Like, I've read the book enough times now to see all the problems with Ron and to see how he's a terrible partner for Hermione and she deserves so much better. And yet, <laughs> I read yeah. that book, and I'm like, I want you guys to be together. I don't know. It's like I, I, the heart wants what it wants. I guess I don't. <laughs> I I just don't like Ron at all. No, no. I mean, I can see it. Like, I you can tell that Hermione likes him. I don't know why, but she does. So, like, you can see that she's romantically attracted to him. What I doubt is why if if he likes her. Yeah. That was yeah. that is what is in doubt for me, um, but I guess like going back to Zutara, I understand it on an intellectual level. But then it's also like if I think about that relationship playing out, how would it play out? Yeah, that's the problem. Is you, there's no future for these people? <laughs> like I sit there and I'm like, okay, convince me. <laughs> like, convince me. Where does this ship go? How does this? How does this happen? Like. They're barely friends by the end of the show, and I'm and I'm perfectly fine if you want to be like, here's some post Avatar fanfic that you can read, right? It's, yeah, it's it's just like not interesting to me as as a as a romantic storyline. So yeah. I'm just kind of like, meh. Also, oh, yeah. because in Avatar, my favorite ship is Zuko and May. Is Zuko and May, and they are adorable. I do genuinely like them. It's Aang and Katara that I'm just not necessarily on board with. I mean. Like Aang and Katara, it, I don't. They're not like my favorite ship in that yeah. show. You know, they're yeah. just you know, it's cute and it's sweet. I think but. Aang kind of has the Harry problem too, and then it's like Harry gets with Ginny at the end so that he can become a Weasley. Like that's why that happens, so that he can have a family again. And it's like I called it from like book two that this was going to be the end game romance for Harry, but. He just don't, I just don't care. I don't have a driving need to see him with anybody. I don't care about his romantic entanglements with no matter who they're with. I like some, like I've heard some fan theories that prefer him with um, Luna out of everybody. And I'm kind of like, if I was going to ship anybody, it might be Harry and Luna. Well, it's because he actually has like conversations with Luna. Yeah. <laughs> he barely you know? has any conversations with Jenny. That's kind yeah. of the problem. And I'm like, just like, but like, but even anybody, like the Cho thing was cute, but like it was only cute before they actually dated, and then I didn't like what Rowling did with that. But I also just was like, Harry, I don't really care about your romantic anything. Like, <laughs> like I just don't care. And I feel like with Aang, it's kind of the same way. They're just kind of sexless for me in this way, where I'm just like, well, okay, like good for you guys. I mean, I guess I'm I. I like, I think Aang is sweet, and I, I love Aang. Aang is one of my favorite characters in that show. And it's kind of like the same thing with Harry. I actually like Harry best of the trio. Um, really? But it's, yeah, I don't really like Hermione or Ron all that much. You don't like Hermione? Hermione's fine. <laughs> I hate Ron. That's really the first I know one. You hate, I know you hate Ron. I've always known that. I feel like I didn't know that you were met on Hermione before. I find her a little bit insufferable. <laughs> I mean, she is. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like I'm learning something brand new about you. <laughs> wow. Um, I guess because, I mean, Hermione's fine, but she, 
there, there's so many ways the narrative fails Hermione in Harry Potter. It's true. It's true. Because she's clearly the smartest and the most resourceful and all of that sort of stuff. And she's very static as a character in the series. She is. And she's sort of just there to be an encyclopedia. She has the least growth of all the three of them. Yeah. And as a result, I'm kind of, you know, I don't, yeah, yeah, I I don't dislike Hermione. I can see "Mm." that. Even Ron has more character growth than she does. So. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't even, I mean, I don't necessarily if I know that, I mean, I, I would say that Harry does have growth. Um, but I, I, like, for some reason, I just like Harry fine, you know? I know a lot of people, especially, like, Book 5 Harry, everybody makes fun of Book 5 Harry, and he's, like, whiny and angsty teenager, and I thought that was funny. Like, I'm, like, one of the few people who thinks (laughs) Book 5 Harry is hilarious. (laughs) He's also not wrong. (laughs) True. Like, he's, like, he's, like, why didn't you tell me? Like, this is information I could have used. And I was, like, (laughs) fair. You're right. Hold on one second. Hello. Yeah. Hey. Beth has come in. Um, so, yeah. I Surprise guest. <laughs> surprise guest on the podcast in the background. Hello. She was a guest before. It is, it is Beth Revis, New York Times bestselling Hi. author. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, anyway, back to romantic tropes, conflict versus... Yeah, we're versus, so good at staying on topic. I know. We are very um. good at staying on topic. Um, <laughs> conflict versus evolution-based. So what would you call these relationships that hinge on some kind of um, either mistaken identity or, like, fundamental misrepresentation of who people are? So I'm thinking of uh, romances like um, You've Got Mail and the properties that was based on where they don't know that they're speaking to, you know, the person that they think they're connecting with online, they don't realize is somebody who's in their actual life. Um, or a lot of times we see romances with like a member of royalty who passes themselves off as a peasant and, uh, starts a romance in that way and has to conceal who they truly are. I would consider those conflict romances. Okay. Because the deception is the conflict. True. You know, it's not like all of a sudden they wake up and they see someone different. It's like literally they are someone different. <laughs> like, you can't really evolve out of a deception. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily mind those. I don't love them. I like I like them okay. I think they're interesting. I think it depends on the why the deception started and how I I, I think so too. I think yeah. I think the premise is really what what it lives in title. Yeah. <laughs> like, if they I, set out to deceive someone, that's one thing, but if it's just like mistaken identity, then I'm kind of like, eh, that's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. There's a really cute um very little known Sondheim musical. Uh, that was one of the first shows he ever did himself called Saturday Night. And the plot is that there are two working class um, people who are at a wealthy function and mistake one another for members of the upper class and they dance and they develop a romance. And so they're both pretending that they are actually upper class people thinking that the other person really is, but actually they're both poor. (laughs) (laughs) So they're trying to conceal that from one another the whole time. And then eventually it comes out. Nope. We're actually both poor people and it's cute and funny because there's no, you know, I don't know. It's, I like it. It's sweet. I, uh, I'm, 
I'm trying to think if there's like any case of mistaken identity. This isn't really mistaken identity, but I was actually thinking of 10 Things I Hate About You. Mm. Um, which is a version of the conflict romance, Tammy of the yes. Shrew, of course. Lots um, of movies from back then are. Yeah, and I actually really love 10 Things I Hate About You. It's a great movie. It really, I think it actually still holds up very well. Um, but that is a deception-based romance as well. Like, they, and something of an evolution, like, you know, it starts out, she doesn't like him, but then over time he wins her over, and Mm -hmm. he finds that he genuinely likes her, even though he was paid Mm -hmm. to date her. Yep. Um, Which is the same exact plot as She's All That, which is another great romantic comedy from that era. (laughs) That does not hold up as well. I haven't seen it. It doesn't. Ten Things I Hate About You was really wonderful. Um... She's All That, I think, is really more based on Pygmalion, um, yeah. like My Fair Lady, um, which is like, I'm going to take this girl and dress her up. When the thing about <laughs> She's All That is like, I'm going to take this ugly girl and make her hot. Take all we're going to do is take off, and you exactly. look completely different. We're just going to take her glasses off and cut her hair and give her, like, early 2000s short red dress. There we go. Like, I think kind of a spate in like the late 90s early 2000s of teen mm-hmm. comedies sort of redoing kind of classic yeah com- like romantic comedies I guess mm-hmm. like classic comedies in that way um so I'm trying to think if there's anything else from that era that Clueless was- is a remake of Emma and that's kind of a friends to lovers-ish that's, sort that's, of thing I would say that's an evolution based romance between yeah. Emma and Mr. Knightley um or in, in in her case, Cher, Cher and, and uh, what's his face? Paul Rudd. <laughs> yeah. Josh. I Josh. Josh is his name. <laughs> what was his name? I can't remember. It's just Paul Rudd, who has the same face. Exactly he, he the not same aged. face. Exactly He's, he must be a vampire. Face. Um. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it does come down to personal preference when it comes to evolution versus conflict base, and also execution does make yes. a pretty big difference. There are there are conflict based romances that I really love, that um, like Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. I really really love the animated version, not not the live action one with, no. with Emma Watson, which <laughs> which is not good. Um, I'm sorry to everybody who does like that movie, but I watched it and I was like, this is somewhat horrific, actually. Um, so I, I do like the Beauty and the Beast trope a lot. I do like... Um, I'm trying to think of... There must be more. I'm trying to think of more. I have, like, conflict-based romances that are good. Um, I mean, I agree with 10 Things I Hate About You, which now I need to go watch pretty much immediately. Um, I'm trying to think of what other movies I really... Like like romantic comedies because I like that genre quite a bit. I think romantic comedies sort of fell off in the mid two thousands. They did, and it it was kind of okay because toward the end there they weren't very good. <laughs> Why do you think that is though? I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about um, about 
stereotypes becoming reduction. So romantic comedies are heavily formulaic. There are beats that you tell, you know, whatever type of romantic comedy story you're going to tell, you choose that framework and then you hit your beats within that story. And we all know how a romantic comedy is going to play out. Um, and and there's think, nothing wrong with that. No, there's, I love them. There's tons that are wonderful, but I think the problem, um, you know, once we got into the, you know, late two thousands, um, you know, like maybe 2005 and on was that they were so popular and people were just making them and they just became reduced down to like the barest, meanest skeletal stereotypes of those things. And the characters weren't there anymore. A lot of what makes romantic comedies work are the characters. The two romantic leads are, you know, fully fleshed out and interesting and unique and, complicated and um i think toward the charming. end of, yeah charming and i think that toward the end of the golden romantic comedy era that i'm remembering um the characters just were not there like even if the premise was good the characters were so wooden and lifeless that no one cares and so yeah yeah i was because i i can't remember the last romantic comedy from like the nineties, early two thousands that I remember liking was Bridget Jones's Diary. I like the that first one. one. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one I remember liking was How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days, which I liked. I didn't love it, but I liked it. Is that the it. one with Matthew McConaughey? It is. Um, I don't it like him very much. No, I don't like him very much. It's him and Kate Hudson. Um, and it's another deception one where they're both deliberately trying to get the other person to break up with them, you know, for magazine writing or whatever. Um, but I did think at least the characters were interesting in that one. And so I enjoyed that to an extent. That's the last one I can really remember enjoying. That was a true straight up romantic comedy. Um, I also think kind of like in the mid to late 2000s, the romantic comedy stopped being funny. (laughs) Yeah, they did. And yeah, they started being really, um, again, like really stereotypical about women and men and and being really um, like reductive in, in those ways and kind of horrible and 10 things I hate or 10 how to lose a guy in 10 days rather, um, kind of played on that a little bit. It's like deliberately talking about some of that stuff, but I don't know. I mean, the Meg Ryan golden era of romantic comedies. I loved, I lo- I just watched when Harry met Sally again, uh, last week and I ended up live tweeting it by accident. Um, but I love that movie so much, even though Harry is kind of a terrible person. Um, yeah. and, and even though you get to the end of that movie and you're like, I don't know if they're going to make it, but yes, <laughs> but despite that, I love that movie anyway, because it's so funny. It's a genuine romantic comedy. Like I laugh when I watch that movie and you know I think a lot of these teen romantic comedies too had that you know there's parts of 10 things I hate about you that are funny that are you know that these these movies are are just really great in that way yeah I think think the ones that stick are funny yeah and I think the ones that don't are really it's a character problem ultimately and I think that's what you find with everything when you jump on trends 
mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. when you jump on trends with books or when you jump on trends with movie or TV, you're seeing a formula that, a formula that worked and you try to rep, replicate the formula. But if you don't bring that formula to life with characters that people care about, then no one, it's not going to go anywhere and it's not going to be successful because the formula alone isn't magic. That's not what captures engagement from people. It's the formula plus characters to care about. Yeah. Do you think there is room now for a resurgence of romantic comedies in both books and movies? I hope so. I would love that. When I started uh, opening up to queries back at the beginning of the year, I kind of was like, I sort of want to open up to chiclet and which is a horrible word for books, but people have spoken about that in the past and there's nothing I can add to the conversation besides being like, yes, it's a terrible name, but it is what it is. Um, but that kind of Bridget Jones esque uh, book that's, you know, that centers women, that's funny, that is, um, you know, plays heavily on, on romantic tropes and has romance central to the plot, but other things as well that are lighter and comedic. And I, I enjoy those kind of stories and I would love to see them come back. I think again, um, it's suffered from that same thing of just repeating a formula and beating it until it was dead. So if we could bring it back and have it be something fresh and new, I, I think there's, definitely space and time for that. I think there's been a long time since that kind of narrative was being told anywhere, whether in movies or TV or in books. I haven't seen that in a while. I think what's missing now is earnestness. Yeah. Because a lot of times I feel like you see, quote, chiclet or commercial women's fiction, which is the other name for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Rye, or it's very self-aware, or it's it's not earnest the way it used to be, and I don't know if if it's if we have room yet for earnestness because it might be too close. Yeah. But I think that's kind of what's missing from the sort of comedic landscape of it's. I mean, also comedy is just hard in general. I think being funny is one of the hardest things to do. I think. Being a comedic yeah. actor is one of the hardest things. I think it's much harder than drama to do. Writing oh, yes. comedy is one of the hardest things to do um, because it requires you to be both timely and quick. You know, it, timeliness is really a, a huge factor in comedy. So, um, not just timing, which is important, but timeliness because there's comedy that does not age well, uh, but it was very funny at the time, right? So, I think that is the one thing about comedy that's kind of, I think, hard to do. And so maybe, maybe it's, maybe we will see a resurgence in, in the chick lit sort of lighter, funny women's Mm -hmm. stories, but I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if the landscape is quite there yet for that kind of earnest story yet. Yeah. It might be a hard sell right now. I think, I do think in books, I know that people are trending towards lighter things. A lot of, almost every editor that I speak with says, yes, I love dark, edgy, gritty stuff, but also I want something lighter. And I think that a lot of that comes from feeling like the world is a very dark place right now. Yes. And, um, and, and I feel this too, that I, 
I want to read things that give me hope or that um, give me levity and lightness and entertainment. And, and I know that almost every single editor I speak to is like, yeah, I, I'm kind of <laughs> looking for that right now, you know, like dark and, and dramatic and edgy is still good. Um, and people will always want that, but, but everybody is mentioning, you know, a, a shift toward things that are slightly lighter, slightly more hopeful, slightly more uplifting and, um, you know, and, and I can understand why. I, I'm the same way. It's after I f- finished Shadow Song, my next, my secret project, basically. I was like, I just want to write something fun. <laughs> because Shadow Song is very heavy. It's not dark, necessarily. It's just heavy, emotionally heavy. Right. And I didn't want to write another emotionally heavy book. So I wanted to write something lighter and something fun, basically. Um, so do we have any last things to say about... Romance, tropes, narratives? Um, I think that was... I mean, I think when we were talking about romance, I covered the things I wanted to. It's a very tangent-heavy episode today, but that's fine. Um, you know, I, I... Yeah, I think that, that romance is great, and I think actually boiling it down to those two types of romantic stories, either conflict-based or evolution-based, I think, is a nice way to think of it. And I think... Um, you know, if you can, if, if you're writing a romance, um, or a story with romantic elements, if you can pin down which type of romance you are writing, um, mm-hmm. that can probably be really helpful for you in terms of what beats you need to hit and, you know, the arc of that your romance needs to take throughout your story. Cause those two things will look very different. Yeah. All right. So let's move on. What are we working on? What are we working on? So one of my authors just turned in her revision, and it was incredible. And I said that I wasn't going to read it that same day because I said, oh, I'll read it next week and get back to you. Um, and then I just pulled it up on my phone because I was like, oh, I just want to see, you know, if the opening has changed any. And then I sat there and I read the whole thing on my phone. I didn't oh, even good. upload it to my Kindle. Yay. <laughs> I, I didn't do anything else. I just sat there on my phone and like got a stiff neck just plowing through the whole thing. And it was wonderful. And the revisions are fantastic. And oh, so we're going to go out. Yeah, we're going to go out on sub with that in September. So I'm really excited. But we have to change the title. Because the title that she queried with, which I think is an excellent title, is also much too similar to a very popular book. Um, Uh, Yeah. Much, much too similar. And so there's no way that we can query this book under that title. So we need to find a new one. And titling things is the worst. It is. (laughs) So she and I have been going back and forth, um, kind of brainstorming, sending lists of words to one another, kind of pairing up different words and trying to find something that sticks. And we have not found something that we like yet. Uh, So I'm kind of in titling hell at the moment, trying to find a good title for something, or at least workable, because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not going to be my problem, because the editor who picks it up is going to have to come up with the title. Yeah, the editors, and the publisher, and marketing, and everybody, it's going to be... It's it's not ultimately my problem, but I need a good enough title that I can put on it, you know, to send to editors, um, 
that, you know, conveys, you know, the tone of the book and what type of book it's going to be. And, you know, that's decent enough. I need something to work with. So it doesn't have to be the perfect end all be all title, but it does have to be good enough. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to even get that far, like to to just even, you know, I'm saying I have notebooks full of words. Yeah. It's a little bit like playing magnetic poetry with concepts and ideas. You're kind of like what works, what doesn't work. We have no idea. I mean, we did that with winter song before we got on got to that title and so yeah, the trends and titles too is that like the shorter the better if you can have one or two words you know is ideal or a short phrase but you can't really have these like long titles so like I was trying to pull phrases from the book but they're all too long or they don't mean anything out of context and you just it's really hard to title stuff <laughs> It is. It is. I don't, you know, it's one thing that I don't do very well. Even as an editor, I would always be like, hey, marketing. <laughs> you, used to, you used to G-chat me and be like, we have this book. Here, yeah. We, we have to title it. What do you think of when you hear these words? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that has kind of been what I've been working on this week is just trying to figure out a title for this book. I have not worked on anything because I've been traveling and doing stuff so nothing new still waiting Mm -hmm. for secret project stuff to announce but that's it i'm just gonna it might be a while you guys i don't even know when publishing is slow yeah um so then what are you reading um nothing I did get, um, the book just came through from the library, Saints and Misfits by, what is Natalie Parker? That doesn't sound right. Um, No, it's not Natalie. It's not, uh, no. No. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. The title escapes, the author escapes me. I'm trying to find it right now, because I should have it. I have not started it yet, obviously. Um, but it just came through, and... My library app doesn't want to show me what it is. Saints and Misfits by S.K. Ali. Yes. Um, and it's got a great, um, great, great cover. And it looks great. So that just came through from the library. And I'm excited to start it. But I have not read it. Um, the only things that I've actually been reading are client manuscripts. Uh, like I said, my author just handed in her revision. And then I have read like Seven or eight requested manuscripts in the last week, um, wow. which is a lot. Yeah, uh, I have not signed anyone off them. I have asked for two revise and resubmits, which um, I am pretty excited about. So we'll see what ends up happening with those, whether or not the authors want to revise and resubmit to me. But uh, yeah, I've done a lot of uh, a lot of reading, just not published reading. I have not read anything this week, but but. I just got a galley of the Cruel Prince by Holly Black. No! Uh, yeah, from Marie Luz. I'm super excited to read oh, that. Um, and a sampler of The Language of Thorns by Leah Bardugo. Um, My face nice, just like fell open. <laughs> oh, it's, it looks amazing and it's so pretty. It's um, I know that's a gorgeous looking book. And she said the and she said the illustrations weren't even finished in the sampler, but they look amazing. Oh, it's so it's so gorgeous. So I am looking forward to reading those, particularly the Cool Prince, um, because my friends love this book, and I was like, oh, I can't wait. Um, so that's that. I've been wandering the floor at Comic Con today. I haven't really picked up anything or bought much. Um, 
I came down yesterday and went to um, the Penguin Random House party. I crashed uh, with Beth Revis. <laughs> she was a guest. I crashed. Um, so we, you know, we went. And then we had dinner and just, you know, caught up with some author friends. So I haven't read anything, and I haven't really, I haven't even really been to very many panels or anything. Like, I saw Lee at lunch, so that's where I got the sampler from, and I saw Marie at lunch as well, so she's the one that gave me the galley. So it's just like, um, but tomorrow I plan to be wandering the floor and going to more panels and possibly picking up stuff to read. Um, so yeah, that's reading wise, and then do we have any off menu recommendations. like I did have one and now I cannot remember what it might have been um yeah I don't know um well I did watch Game of Thrones on Sunday the Ah. first episode of season 7 um I'm excited I am it's like finally all the pieces have been maneuvered into place and finally Mm -hmm. we'll see whether or not it pays off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's really the thing. It's we'll see whether or not it pays off. Um but I am excited. Um they did have the Game of Thrones panel here at Comic Con, which I did not go to, but I did quite literally run into some of the cast members as they were like emerging to signs posters and stuff. Um other off many recommendations. I did go to Disneyland on Tuesday with my friend. Yeah uh, from high school. She is, we were both in visual arts conservatory together, and now she is an animator for Disney. Technically, she's a storyboard artist for Disney. So as an employee of the mouse, she's able to get us into Disneyland for free. Um, So that was, that was nice. And that was, it was nice to catch up um, and hang out with Cassie. Um, But I don't really have anything else off-menu recommendation wise I just feel like I don't know where this week has gone I'm just exhausted. yeah yeah very long long week alright so we looks like as though we have one question on the hashtag we do so do you want to read it out loud sure this is from um hmm <laughs> at paper lastrator Paper Illustrator? I don't know. I'm probably butchering that. Sorry about that. Uh, But they ask, for a nonfiction paperback biography about a deceased person, is it necessary to have the family or estate's permission? Do publishers prefer it? Okay, so I am not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. This is based on my time working in permissions and contracts, but I don't know everything. Um, Definitely do not try to go out there and say, I heard this on the pop crawl podcast, so it's okay. Um, so uh, there is a certain amount of things that you can, um, do without permission from a deceased person's estate. Um, the thing that I do want to focus on though, is because you said it's a picture book. So if this is a picture book, um, and it's going to be either illustrated with original illustrations or with photographs, that is when you start to run into a lot of permission issues. Um, Even if you are, you know, let's say you're an artist and you're painting the illustrations for your um, picture book, let's say there's a famous photograph of your subject and you paint a version 
of that photograph, you actually need permissions to do that, to replicate a mm-hmm. photograph. Even though you're not reproducing the photograph in your book, you're painting a version of the photograph, you need permission for that. So when you're thinking about these illustrations or having these illustrations done, if there are iconic images of the person that you are writing about, you can't reproduce those in any form without seeking permissions for the original creator of the image. Um, If the person is deceased, you do not need a model release form. Um, But things like quotes, if this person, you know, wrote speeches or made famous proclamations or, you know, gave interviews or whatever else, if you're going to include any of their direct words in your book, you are going to need permissions from whichever estate or rights holder holds those things. So um, keep all of that in mind. Most of the time, permissions are sought after a book is contracted. Publishers will have specific forms that they will want you to use to obtain permissions because they have certain legal protections that they need to keep in place. So even if you go to the estate now and you get permission for whatever it is that you need to do, once you bring the book to the publisher with the contracting deal and you hand them those permissions, they might look at them and say, no, these don't meet our legal needs. You need to go back and get them again using our forms. Um, So for that reason, most of the time permissions are not actually sought until after the book has been contracted and you have a deal with a publisher and they will tell you the exact permissions that they need and they'll give you the forms that you need to go get those permissions. Um, Again, publishers usually have legal teams in place for this kind of thing, but they're not infallible. Um, you know, you will be on the hook if permission is Listen not... to our <laughs> Warranties and Indemnities <laughs> podcast. Yes, do that. That will be your responsibility. Um, you know, so I would say if you are interested in doing this project, um, a picture book biography of a deceased person, um, proceed with caution consider these issues when um, arranging for your illustrations if you are the illustrator. If you're just a writer then illustrations come later after the book's been contracted. Um, So keep these things in mind. Also keep in mind that permissions are expensive and you will have to pay permissions fees for them and that those will be your responsibility. The publisher usually does not pay for permissions. Uh, So also keep that in mind that for everything you need permission for, every quote, every image, every everything, you're going to have to pay for it. And it can range, you know, from 50 bucks to 5,000, depending Mm -hmm. on what it is, how it's used. Yeah. So, (laughs) um, you know, do not seek permission for these things yet, but definitely keep it in mind as you are creating this work. Um, That's the best I I got for you. I think maybe if you have like word of like, like in an email or something where you've spoken to somebody at the estate and Mm -hmm. gotten verbal permission and then you write it and you get contracted, then things get formalized later. But it is a tricky process just in general. I mean, if you're writing a biography, it's really a tricky thing, period. So, you know, I always say better safe than sorry, especially when it comes to these sorts of things. Uh huh. That's kind of, that's all I can really say about that as well. Yeah. So, hooray, legal stuff. Uh, do we have any other questions? 
think that was the only one. Okay. Uh, we do have a new review. We do. I'm so excited. That's two in a row. <laughs> Yay! All right. So this is from Alice1968. Best podcast for writers. I found this podcast just under a year ago, and it has taught me so much about writing in the publishing industry. JJ and Kelly have wonderful energy. I love the discussions they have about popular books and movies and look forward to the recommendations segment. If you're looking for an entertaining, informative, and upbeat podcast about books and writing, look no further. Well, we hope you enjoy this one since we went on such a tangent about romantic comedies. I can't believe they consider us upbeat. I feel like we're such a downer sometimes. I guess we're really animated when we when we convey disappointing information, though. <laughs> we say it in a pleasant way. We say it in a nice way, in a happy way. All right. That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about Robin Hood stories or the oppressed versus the oppressor. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. Yeah, give us three in a row. (laughs) If you you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming on November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or ask us on Twitter using the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye! Bye!